Our scripture passage this morning is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful this morning, thankful first and foremost, foundationally for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that the fact that you're creator, you're holy, you are set apart, but we are not. We are self-focused and self-centered and we go our own way and we would rather rule our own lives than let you rule us, yet you didn't leave us in our sin. You entered in. You sent your son who lived a perfect life, fully and completely obedient to you and died a death that he did not deserve. He died the death that we deserved. He suffered in our stead. He bore the penalty we deserve. He was crucified in our place so that if we will trust in him, we don't have to work our way to you. We don't have to try to perform. We don't have to have our lives together. We merely believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and we believe that, and we're thankful, and because of that, we're granted eternal life, full and final forgiveness of sins. We're gifted the Holy Spirit by which we're conformed to Jesus as we wait between these times. And it's all possible because Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. It's all possible because you raised him from the dead. Without the resurrection and without Easter, there would be no hope. And so we're thankful this morning. Thankful for your faithfulness. Thankful that you speak promises and you keep promises. And the empty tomb is a testimony to that. We're thankful to be able to gather this morning. Reflecting on where we were at this time last year. We're so glad to be here together with our family. To praise you to hear from you, to be reminded of your goodness and your grace. And we do pray for the ministries of this local church and pray for Abilene Classical Academy as it's off to such a strong start. We do pray that many disciples would be made through the efforts of ACA. It would be a huge blessing to the city of Abilene. God, we're thankful for yet new New life yet again here at Southside. We're so thankful for the fruitfulness that you've given this church. And we pray for the Palos family this week as they adjust to life with newborn twins. Arthur and Oliver, we're thankful for their birth, thankful for their health. And we pray that you would give them special grace in days and weeks ahead. And we pray for their salvation even now that they would come to know you at a very, very early age. Save them. Pray for those who can't be here with us this morning. I think of particularly Betty Putnam, and I'm so glad to hear that she can now receive visitors. And I pray that many here at Southside, many members 
would reach out to her and go visit her. And I pray that she would have a very encouraging month, encourage her even now as she reflects on the hope of Easter. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for your redeeming grace and we wouldn't be here if you weren't there and we wouldn't be here if you hadn't spoken to us. And so we're so thankful that we have your word written. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise that this word will bring forth growth. It will not return to you empty. It will, you promise, accomplish that which you purpose. And so as we open it up, help us not to lean on our own understanding. But in all our ways, acknowledge you, our creator, our maker, our redeemer. May this word be a light to our feet. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but your word stands forever. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. Well, happy Easter. It's good to see you. It snuck upon us. I don't know about you. For us, 2021 has been a blur And first things first, we always have a lot of guests on Easter, and I just want to say welcome. Really glad you're here, glad you chose to worship with us this morning. And I want to encourage our members to make it a goal. If you're a member here, make it a goal to meet someone that you don't know before you leave this morning. Stay a little late. All the restaurants are going to be crowded anyway. Might as well hang for 10 minutes and meet someone new. And I know many of our guests, uh, you're not members of a local church, and so while I have you as a captive audience... Let me challenge you to commit to a church this year. And you're already here, so you might as well plant roots. <laughs> let, me give you, let me give you a four-week challenge. Maybe you haven't been in church in a while. Let me just challenge you to return here for four weeks with a prayerful attitude and see what God does. Because I think you already know that half-hearted commitment, half-hearted Christianity, it's really a dead-end road. Half-hearted Christians are some of the least content people around because they know enough about the Lord to have this constant low-grade sense of guilt, but they haven't really committed their lives to Christ enough to be happy in Him. And so let me just challenge you, be all in for the Lord. Listen to one of my favorite dead Baptist preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He says, be half a Christian... And you shall have enough religion to make you miserable. Be wholly a Christian and your joy shall be full. Be wholly a Christian. And one of the many reasons I love this church, I love this people, I love the ministries of the church, I love this book is that I can promise you, if you join this place, if you plug in, plug in if you commit yourself, your life will change. Now, it'll probably get harder. Nowadays, being a Bible-believing Christian, it's hard. And that's what we are here. We take this book very seriously. But friends, life is too short for half-hearted, watered-down Christianity. So your life may get more difficult, but it is worth it. Life is short. Eternity is long. And there are lots of things I would want you to know about this church. And you can read about our core values online or you can go grab a bag and read one of our brochures. But if there was just one main thing I would want you to know, it's that we are ruled by God's word. This book sets the agenda for all that we do at every level of ministry from here to our children's ministry because God has promised to use this book. And this is what he uses to change people. This is what he uses to save people. And so on Sunday mornings, typically we just open it up and whatever's here is whatever I'm going to preach. So we're in the gospel of Matthew right now. 
And we'll be in Matthew for a couple years, just walking through all 28 chapters of Matthew. And whatever God has said, that's what we're going to say. We're going to take a break this morning and look at 1 Peter, but I would want you to know that about us, that we're ruled by God's word. But because of that, then we're extremely, radically committed to the Great Commission, which Jesus gives us actually at the end of the book of Matthew. And so we're committed to getting the gospel out to the nations, but also to our neighbors and among one another. Again, one of the things I love about this church is the members of this church care for the spiritual growth of the other members. So really glad you're here. Like I mentioned, we're in 1 Peter so if you've got a Bible, open it up, 1 Peter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the chair underneath you, and underneath in front of you. And it's page 953. 1 Peter chapter 1. And 1 Peter was written by Peter. And if you know anything about Peter, he often put his foot in his mouth. He's an endearing fellow. He probably would have been a good Texan because he was quite loud. And he also invented concealed carry, if you know his story. <laughs> he, was often, he was often a failure, and that's one of the reasons we love him, right? Peter reminds us that even when you fail, even multiple times, God will not fail you. And Peter's writing here to the church that is beginning to experience persecution. It wasn't quite physical yet, but it was headed that way. It was becoming harder and harder to become a Christian. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, sakes alive. Some people didn't even want Oral Roberts to even play basketball in the NCAA tournament because they believe what the Bible teaches about sexuality. What Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years and all of a sudden they discern, oh, it's a Christian school, cancel them. No hoops for you. So we can relate increasingly to a letter like 1 Peter where Peter's writing a syllabus for suffering saints. And this morning, let's consider four reasons to praise God this morning and really every morning. For new birth, for a living hope, for an eternal inheritance, and for preserving grace. So first, praise God for causing us to be born again. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So Peter's writing to a church that's having a hard time. And Peter starts with a call to praise God. Hmm. Things are getting harder, we're being persecuted, and yet Peter tunes our hearts to sing God's praise. He says, stop focusing on your current circumstances and look up. Blessed be God. Praise be to God. In fact, verses 3 all the way to 12 is really one long sentence, and you know what the main point is? Praise God. And he fills in all the reasons why we ought to praise God. This word for blessed or praise is this word, eulogetes. Eula, you kind of you hear our word in there, right? Eulogy. Good words, we often think of funerals. When we hear about eulogies, good words about the deceased, sadly, in our time, they're good words, often not true words, are they? <laughs> the worst example I have is when I was a pastor outside of Austin, and a guy had died, I never met him. Uh, he was a member of this church because it wasn't a meaningful membership type church like ours is. And uh, he was just the town scoundrel, honestly, and everybody knew it. He was the town drunk and everybody knew it was a small town and he passed away. Well, they called in uh, the, the previous 
Baptist preacher, so I didn't have to do it. I was very glad for that. Uh, and I just kind of sat back, and this Baptist preacher preached this guy into heaven. He's just talking about all kinds of things. And everybody in the room's like, are we talking about the same guy? We go to the graveside, and uh, all his buddies come to the graveside, and they lower his casket, and they, they open a six-pack of a Lone Star, <laughs> pour it on his casket. <laughs> so eulogies are good words, often untrue words, but these are good words and true words here. This eulogy is right and fitting. And notice he doesn't just say good words about God, doesn't just praise God, doesn't say blessed be God, but praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we learn two things from the way Peter describes God right off the bat. First thing we learn is he's a father from all eternity. The God we worship is father from all eternity. There was father and son and spirit. He's not just the creator. He's not just the ruler, but he's father. In essence, that's who he is. He's a father. Now, in our day, that means often negative things. He's the perfect father, though. That's who he is. That means in his essence, he is love. That's how he can be love. If he weren't father, son, and spirit, he couldn't be in essence love because for creation, there would have been no one to love. But there is. We serve a triune God. And so from all eternity, the father has overflowed with love for his son and for the spirits. One essence, three persons. We worship a triune God. And because he's the perfect father, he overflows with love and kindness. He's by nature, he's by definition relational and loving and life-giving, as we'll see in just a moment. But also notice he's the father of Jesus Christ. This is a very specific God. It's the only true God. And that's why Jesus will say things like, I and the father are one. In John, in John 14, he says, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. See, there's no other God besides the one true God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to God besides through Jesus. Jesus himself said, there is no way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Peter starts with his letter of encouragement with a a call to praise the triune God, even in hard times. Doxology is the basis of the Christian life. And why? He says, blessed be the God and Father, there in verse 3 of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has caused us to be born again. The Father begets children. He gives new birth. Just think about our birth. Our birth is very important, right? Our birth is determinative for so many things. Our ethnic identity, our citizenship, our socioeconomic class, our birth identifies us. Our birth gives shape to the rest of our lives. And here, Peter praises God for giving us new birth, second birth, which reshapes the rest of our lives. It's a whole new start. He changes us and he gives us a new nature. That's what we needed, right? We didn't need just a facelift. We needed open heart surgery. And so we praise him because he did it. We didn't cause ourselves to be born again. He did it by grace and mercy, great mercy even. You know, we've had a lot of, of births here at Southside in the last mm, three years, and that's all that I know of. It's probably been going on for quite a bit longer, and it's so encouraging to see just new life. And new babies, we take the command, be fruitful and multiply seriously here at Southside. Make babies, make culture. But I can guarantee you, 
Not one of these recent slew of babies came out and took a bow. Why? Because they didn't deliver themselves. They were delivered. Birth happened to them. And same with us. We are as responsible for our second birth as we are for our first birth. Peter said, God caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. And mercy is him withholding that which we deserve. You know what we deserve in here? You know really the one thing we deserve in here right now? It's condemnation. It's all we've really earned in this place this morning. And because of God's mercy, he offers life. Mercy is God withholding us from holding what from us what we deserve. And he's given us new life. As Thomas Watson said, every time you draw your breath, you suck in mercy. And it says his mercy is great. Richard Sibbs, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. God caused us to be born again, so we should praise him. You know, Jimmy Carter famously would call himself, I'm a born-again Christian, I'm a born-again Christian. And I appreciate the clarity, but really that's, that's like saying I'm a Christian Christian because there are only born-again Christians. If you haven't been born again, you're not a Christian. The word is to generate again. Theologians call it regeneration. So it's an important category. The question is how? How are we born again then? If it's God's doing, how does God do it? Well, Peter actually, he doesn't tell us here, but he does on the next page. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. And so right here he says that we were born again, how? Through the word, through the living and abiding word. That's how it happens. This word goes out and God uses this message, this good news to move us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Born again. That's why James can say, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is why we take this so seriously. This is how God works. The message of the gospel is shared. It's proclaimed and God uses it. That's why we ought not to be ashamed of it. Romans 1.16, not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. It's really freeing for those of us who share this gospel to know at the end of the day, we're not the ones responsible for turning people from death to life. We got to be faithful to that message and God uses that message to do that. New birth. You remember Nicodemus? He was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Listen to John chapter three, verse three. Jesus speaking to him says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It says a little bit further down, verse 7, Do not marvel, Jesus says to Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born 
of the Spirit. You must be born again to enter or even see the kingdom. George Whitfield, during the first Great Awakening, is very famous traveling Calvinistic Methodist evangelists who go around preaching at various places and God uses ministry and he really had one main sermon he preached all over the place from John chapter 3 you must be born again and so one time someone asked him you know Reverend Whitfield why are you constantly preaching this message about the necessity of the new birth and he said because friend you must be born again So if one must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, the pressing question for us this morning is, have you experienced the new birth? How would you know? You know, there are lots of people in the South. There are lots of people in Abilene, Texas that say they are Christians but are not regenerates. They have not been born again. It's what we would call a false convert. That was me, actually. Most of my life, all through high school, I would have said I was a Christian. There was no fruit in my life until God saved me at age 18. So how would you know? Well, I I know that I'm alive. I know that I have life, not because of some past events, not because I have a birth certificate, not because my mom said I was born. I know that I'm alive because I'm breathing today. And so when you ask yourself and examine yourself, and the scripture calls us to examine ourselves, have I been born again? Let me encourage you not to look at some past events. Don't look at the fact that you may have been raised in the church. You know, maybe I've, you know, I've been in church. My grandma was a Baptist. I've signed a card, walked an aisle. I was baptized. No, no, ask today. Are you believing in Jesus? Is there fruit in your life today? Are you following him? The little letter of 1 John, if you don't know and you're wrestling with this question, let me encourage you to read 1 John. It's five chapters. It was really written for this question to be answered. And it tells us really there's three main things. A person who is born again is characterized by these three main things. Number one, they believe in Jesus, the Son of God. Probably most of you, if you're here, you do that. You believe in him. That was me in high school. So, yeah, I believe that. But for me, it really wasn't true saving faith. It was just intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe that. I believe facts about him. It has no implication for my life. That's why there's other tests in 1 John. The other test is we obey his commands. We're obedient to Jesus, in other words. Now, listen to me really carefully. We don't obey in order to be accepted and loved by God. We obey because we've been accepted. The order is really important, right? The gospel says we believe in Jesus. We've been fully forgiven. Therefore, we obey and want to please him. Religion, false religion says I obey and I try to please God so that I would then be accepted and favored. That order makes all the difference in the world. But a genuine sign of someone who's been saved is they're obedient, imperfectly, always falling. Look at Peter himself. We all stumble in many ways, James chapter 3. But we can look at his life and say, he's trying to please the Lord. She's trying to obey Jesus. So number one, belief in the Son of God. Number two, obedience. And then number three, and this is what I think Abilene, Texas needs to hear more than anything, is a love for the church. And the vast majority of times the word church is mentioned in the New Testament. It's speaking to the local church. Listen to how John puts it in 314. 
we know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, we know we've been born again. We know we're saved. How do we know, John? Tell me. Because we love the brothers. Brothers in John, as most of the New Testament is, it's a sibling term. Brothers and sisters, sibling, family of faith. We can know that we're actually born again because we love people in the local church. The family of faith. And love means action, not just sentiment. It's real easy to love the church without having to love Joe and Bob and Sally Mae, isn't it? And so again, if you're here and you confess Jesus as Lord and you haven't been, let me again challenge you to commit to joining a local church this year. So first reason we praise God, causing us to be born again. Second reason, we praise God for causing us to be born again to a living hope. Look again at 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of mercy, we're born again into a hope that is living, a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, through Easter, we're born into hope. And hope for us, it's this confident expectation that God will make good on his promises. Our hope is not dead, it's not futile, it's not merely wishful thinking, but it's a living hope. Our hope is as certain as the grave is empty. Easter is the basis of hope. And we were once a hopeless people. Outside of Christ, there really is no hope. If you're not a Christian, you ever think about that? Let me just press on you a little bit. We get so busy and so distracted and we're able to numb ourselves so much in the age of the internet. But you ever stop and think that outside of Christ, there really is nothing to hope for. The motto in the first century was, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. When you really stop and let yourself go there, it gets depressing quite quickly. Without Christ, without the afterlife, the only logical alternative is nihilism. It's all pointless. Or hedonism. Just let's try to squeeze every bit of little temporary pleasure that's so fading and fleeting, but let's try it anyway because that's all we have. It's really a bleak outlook. And if you're a Christian, that was us. It is no more. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you, Christian, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But we were given a living hope, Easter hope. And Easter hope, when we really lean into it, it has the power to change everything about us. It changes your life. Again, that's why there's no time for half-hearted, watered-down Christianity. We're robbing ourselves of joy and God of glory when we try to keep one foot in the world and one foot in with the Lord. How so? How could Easter hope change? Let me just mention six ways how Easter hope changes. First, it changes our grief. This world is filled with grief. We've had a year full of grief. And Christians grieve. 
Jesus grieved. But it changes the way we grieve. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And so even our grieving is different because of the resurrection. For, for us, we realize it's not the end of the game, right? For us, if, especially if it's a loved one in Christ, we realize that it's not a period, it's just a comma. We grieve differently because we know how the story ends. It doesn't end. <laughs> so we grieve differently. Second way Easter changes us. This is probably my favorite. It eradicates fear. Fear. There are many fears in the world. There are many phobias in the world today. Some of them are totally irrational, but a lot of them make sense. But really, if you think about it, isn't the fear of death really what's behind all other phobias? Whether it be snakes or spiders or heights, all of it ends at the end of the day. I don't want to die. And again, I don't mean to make us too uncomfortable on Easter, but death is something to be reckoned with. Again, we, we can distract ourselves, we can rename things, we can push off death off into a corner in a way that for 2,000 years we haven't been able to do, and we don't like to think about it. It makes us uncomfortable, but I don't think we really can fully live the Christian life the way we're meant to live until we've grappled with death. It's the great equalizer. How good of a tailback is Walter Payton? He's not, he's dead. How pretty is Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Monroe? Not Manson. Woo, we know the answer to that one, don't we? <laughs> He'll have his day soon. How pretty was Marilyn Monroe? Well, he probably looked fairly similar now. She's not, she's dead. How smart is Albert Einstein? He's not. He's dead. And you and I are going to die, friends. And it's going to come sooner than we even realize. And one of the great resources of the Christian faith, unlike all other worldviews, is hope in the midst of death. Time flies. The day is coming near, even by the hour. Life is short. The passing of time destroys most hopes. Chapter 1, verse 24, Peter, I just read it. He says, all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. Cancer will come. Maybe remission for a season. It often returns. All pointing us towards the grave, all of it, even the small things, wrinkles and rickety knees, fading eyesight, diabetes, heart issues, on and on and on. They're all pointers that because of sin, things are not right. Because of sin, it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. The wages of sin is death. But, see, Easter really only, Easter is really just rabbits and sugar and pastels without a grappling of death. But for those of us who know we're sinners and know what we deserve because of our sin, oh man, Easter is so much more than sugar and bunnies and colors, isn't it? 
because of Easter, because of the resurrection of Jesus, which guarantees our resurrection. That's why he's called the first fruits. Death has lost its sting. Death is not the victor, Christian. Do you believe that this morning? Can you say that? One of my goals, my life vocation is to help the members of Southside Baptist Church die well. Are you ready? Do you believe this? Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. This is wordy, but it's beautiful. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, Jesus, he himself, likewise partook of the same things. In other words, this is why God became man. This is why Jesus, this is why the incarnation, this is why Christmas, this is why he shared flesh and blood. That through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has freed us from the fear of death. How did he do it? Through his death. So we don't fear. Easter hope should eradicate fear. As generations past have sung, because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Third way Easter hope changes our life is joy. It solidifies our joy because our happiness is not bound up with the here and now, but with the there and then. Our joy is not dependent upon temporary external circumstances that change by the day, but rather on the unchanging rock that is Jesus Christ. When our joy is found in him, nothing can shake it because nothing can shake him. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was in London. He himself was a physician and he ended up dying of cancer at a fairly old age. And he was dying and he basically quit communicating uh, the last week of his life. And his doctor was there. And according to his doctor's testimony, he came and he offered some antibiotics. And Lloyd-Jones just shook his head. He refused And his doc said, I want to make you comfortable, more comfortable. It grieves me to see you sitting here weary and worn and sad. And Lloyd-Jones mustered up the effort to say two more words. Not sad. Not sad. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. We should have a joy that is unshakable. Even when life is hard, even on our deathbed because of Easter. Fourth way it changes our lives. Again, we're thinking about forward-looking faith. It's our posture towards things, towards stuff, towards materialism. We realize that this world at the end of the day is temporary. So is it stuff. And no, we know that you're never going to see a U-Haul pulling a hearse. A hearse pulling a U-Haul, I mean. You don't take it with you. And so we live as stewards then. We realize, okay, I'm a steward now. I'm not here to accumulate. It's not going with me. So I'm a steward of what God's given me. And so we're going to heed the teaching of Jesus, which we'll see here in a little while, Matthew chapter 6, and not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Fifth, Easter gives us purpose in life. It gives us a reason to live. Better, it gives us someone to live for. I mean, just think of the guy who wrote this letter we're reading. Peter, his life was turned upside down because of the resurrection. If you know Peter's story, remember, he denied the Lord three times. One time, he caved into peer pressure to a teenage girl. 
Three times. And then Mary Magdalene sees that empty tomb and tells the guys. And Peter runs to see it himself. And he's never the same. From then on, he was living for the Lord. He went from denying Jesus to boldly preaching Jesus. Even till the day of his death. He gave his life for the sake of the gospel. He was crucified. But he refused to be crucified like his Lord. He considered himself unworthy. And so he was crucified upside down. The empty tomb should cause us to put all our chips in for the Lord. Live for his glory. It's what you were made for. It's why you're here. And then six, and finally, Easter hope should help us endure earthly suffering. It teaches us that this life is largely suffering, but followed by glory. That's the pattern of Jesus, suffering then glory. It's the pattern of our life. Suffering, then glory, outwardly wasting away, but inwardly renewed day by day. Because this light, momentary affliction, doesn't matter if it's 80 years, it is light and it is momentary. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As the song goes, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? So uses suffering and we're reminded this is not all there is. Resurrection is coming. He lays, God lays the stumbling blocks and he turns them into stepping stones on the road to glory. Resurrection's coming. By the way, D.A. Carson put it, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. Luther said, so many are experiencing death in the midst of life when we're actually experiencing life in the midst of death. We have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. There's a grave outside of Jerusalem where the body of Jesus was laid. It's not there anymore. And because of that, everything's different for us. At least it should be. Our hope is as solid as the resurrection body of Jesus. J.I. Packer said, for the Christian, the best is always yet to be. And so we can endure suffering. Praise God for living hope. Third, Praise God for causing us to be born again to an eternal inheritance. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. If you're a Jewish person and you hear the word inheritance, the first thing you're thinking of is the promised land, but the promised land pointed forward ultimately to our salvation and ultimately to the whole restored world, new heavens, new earth. And Peter describes our inheritance here in four ways. Number one, he says, it's imperishable. Your true inheritance cannot be ruined. It cannot be destroyed. It is undefiled. In the new world, there'll be no need for keys and locks and jails and police. It's undefiled. It can never spoil, cannot be stained, cannot grow old. It cannot wear out. It is unpolluted. It's unfading, can never fade. It's not subject to decay like everything else in this world is. No, not this inheritance. It will not disappoint us in any way. It's eternal. But how can we, how can we be sure it won't, it won't be taken from us? Well, the fourth thing he says is it's kept. 
This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Praise God because he's caused us to be born again through the resurrection to an eternal inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept. It is permanent, pure, powerful, and preserved. Just leads us to our fourth reason to praise God from this passage, and that's for preserving grace. He guards us. Look at verse 5. Who, us, the church, is kept in heaven for you, who, verse 5, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You ever wonder, how am I going to make it? How am I going to finish well? Life is hard. Temptations abound. The Holy Spirit through Peter wants us to know we're guarded for glory. This word for guard, it's a military term. For guard or even shield, we and our inheritance, we're under protective custody and the chief guard is God himself. We're going to be all right. God's for you in Christ. And if God is for you, none can be against you. Come what may, your inheritance is secure. The kingdom is kept for us, regarded for glory. It won't be easy, but God has us. He'll hold us. There's a song called He Will Hold Us Fast. We'll probably introduce this year. Let me read some lyrics from it. When I fear, my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And hold us fast, he does. Preserving grace, he keeps his own Jude 24, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling in to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He holds us. I love what we learn about prayer from the prayers of the New Testament. And in Ephesians 1, Paul prays and he's praying for the church. And here's what he prays. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we would know what is the hope to which he's called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There it is, inheritance. He wants us to know about it. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God wants us to know about this. He wants us to know the riches of his glorious inheritance that is guarded for us. He wants us to know that it's his power. He says the immeasurable greatness of his power. It can't even be measured. It can't be quantified. And it's for us who believe. And it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand installing him as king that power is for us church we're in good hands God will preserve us Jesus said in John 6 all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out I love the confidence of our king here 
all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You know, there are some Christians that, uh, in other traditions that believe you can lose your salvation. And if it were up to you, you would. But salvation is not ours to lose. He didn't spare his own son. He'll freely with him give us all things. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We're not guarded by our own power. He says that, right? Look at verse 5 again. Who by God's power are being guarded. God will preserve his people. He promises to finish the work that he started. What's our role though? How are we being guarded? Notice what Peter says there. Through faith. We don't earn it. We don't perform it. We don't accomplish it. We keep believing. We stay plugged in. And what are we being guarded for? He says, for a salvation ready to be revealed. Salvation's future, according to this verse. There's a lot of tenses. There's really all three tenses, really. We have been saved. If you've trusted in Christ, there is no condemnation. Past tense. There's passages that speak about the fact that we are being saved. How are we saved? By the gospel, same way we were saved past tense. How will we be saved, future tense? Through faith. And this is what he's talking about, this future element of salvation that we haven't received yet. This salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. Easter reminds us that Christianity is a forward-looking faith. I mean, we have so many blessings in America. Incredible nation to live in, incredible country to live in. But one of the downsides in terms of a vibrant faith is we're so comfortable here that we don't think about the future nearly enough. But if we read the Bible, Christianity is a forward-looking faith, even if the Lord gives us 100 years, like sweet Miss Tex Jackson. I know you're not 100 yet. You've got four more years. But even if we have 96 years, it's a blip on the scale of eternity and yet we get so focused and so worried and so consumed with today and tomorrow and this week and this month and this year and most of us don't spend near enough time investing our time talent and treasure in that which will last for eternity we should focus on the next millennium more than we focus on the next month The world is not all there is. We are aliens here. We're pilgrims. In fact, if you look, look how 1 Peter 1.1 describes us. We are elect exiles. We've been displaced. We're waiting for home. So because of Easter, praise God for preserving grace. Grace that was won for us on the cross, on that good Friday. That's good because on that Friday, it seemed like defeat, but on Sunday morning, defeat turned to victory. On that Friday, Rome thought they had stopped out another rebel, but on Sunday morning, Caesar realized the limits of his power. They said, he is finished. He said, it is finished. On that Friday, darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But on Sunday morning, Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. On that Friday, the disciples drooped their heads. But on Sunday morning, the clouds dispelled. Gloom turned to bright hope. 
On that Friday, it seemed like the sun was damned. But on Sunday morning, we learned that he was damning damnation. On that Friday, mortality seemed to win the day. But on Sunday morning, mortality was made immortal. On that Friday, Jesus seemed destroyed, but on Sunday morning, we learned that he was actually destroying destruction. He was cursing cursedness. He was breaking brokenness. On that Friday, the church seemed like a false start, but on Sunday morning, resurrection power was released. On that Friday, the fear of death was enslaving, but on Sunday morning, death lost its sting. On that Friday, hope had all but died, but on Sunday morning, death itself died. On that Sunday morning, we were given living hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy. That is great that has entered our lives and moved us from death to life by grace, by great mercy. And our response is faith. If there are those here who have not trusted in Christ, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Show them the beauty of Christ and his resurrection. Show them the meaningless of life apart from him. And for those of us who know you, the resurrection should change everything about us. And so we need your help, and we ask, would you, would you help us to live faithfully in light of Easter? Not just today, not just once a year, but every waking moment of our life for your glory, which leads to our joy. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.